Okay. Okay. Is that too loud? Sure. Hi, Cheryl. For those of you who weren't here last week, I'd like to introduce Nancy Marion. Thanks, Betty. Who was, was there anyone that was not here? I s looks like I see a lot of familiar faces. Okay. Okay. Anyone else that was not here? As I'm talking, you might want to just, uh, okay. Thank you. Sure. Anybody else? We're going to refer to this, so this might be helpful for you to, to have, as well as this. I'm sorry, I have one more here. We'll give that to okay. him. That's, yeah, sorry. I have some, I have some extras. Okay, good to see everyone again this morning. Nice, really nice outside, beautiful day. Uh, just really as a quick review, and for those uh, few of you that weren't here with us last week, I'll just kind of quickly go through what we talked about as a little review, and then uh, like to get some of your perspectives on the little quiz we took at the end of last week. So you can share some of your thoughts now that you've had a little time to, to process it. Um, as I mentioned, the... A lot of the work that I share is really based on the, the work of Ruby Payne, who um, has been working in this field for quite a few years. And her, her, uh, the way she got involved in this in the first place was she was a classroom teacher, and she was working with many children of poverty and didn't have um, really the resources. She couldn't find the resources to use and started making comparisons about the value system and the... Um, understanding of those living in poverty as compared to middle class and wealth. And uh, the books were written specifically for teachers, but as time went and as things, uh, there was a need and communities started realizing the poverty in their communities and what they could do as a society to help, she uh, wrote a book called Bridges Out of Poverty, which is really designed for whole communities to look at the issues of poverty and how they can help those in need and help them by giving them a hand up rather than a hand out. So her work has been um, used quite a bit. Ari Jensen also has written a book about poverty that deals with um, the brain and how um, things, uh, because of lack of nutrition and lack of sometimes prenatal care, how some children get a very slow start. They live in poverty, which affects them and their learning. Those of you that came in, were you here with us last week? Yes? Yes. No, I want to share, uh, if you want to pass, this will be helpful. Were those ladies here last week? Okay. And we just shared a little bit about the scripture and how important we know it is uh, that we as Christians and as, as citizens help those in need and are aware of those, those needs. And we'll talk more about that in the next two weeks. Um, a lot of the... The um, current events tell us that, you know, poverty is something that we really have to, to be aware of. You know, we can't look away. We have to really realize that it affects all aspects of all of our lives. Um, this was in the repository uh, a couple years ago, talking about poverty in Canton, and we see the numbers, and we know the unemployment, and we know the, sorry, we know the, the need here locally, um, as well as, as um, in our country and nation. Last week, we very quickly uh, talked about why, you know, what can poverty lead to? What are some of the things that can cause uh, havoc in a person's life because of poverty? And we brainstormed, and we came up with a list of things. We started all of them with D just to kind of focus on one particular area. And these were some of the things that, that were brought up, as well as a few additional ones. Le poverty can lead to death, disease, depression, divorce, drugs, drinking, disillusionment, deployment, disaster, Downsizing, disability, dementia, diapers, uh, domestic violence, dumb decisions, discouragement, uh, disappointment, and dehired. So there's a lot of things that poverty will lead to, and so one of the reasons why we want to, to work very hard to eliminate it as early as possible. And being an educator for so many years, I know the effects that poverty has on children and how we, we as educators and we as a society need to really focus on that. Those most likely to live in poverty, children, immigrants, 
uh, female-headed households, disabled people, and minorities. We talked last week a little bit about um, generational and situational poverty. The um, female-headed households, it's not so much anymore because a lot of women are in the workplace, but back when uh, usually the man of the home worked and the woman stayed at home, didn't have skills, maybe didn't have an education, and if there was a split uh, in the marriage, so often uh, the, f the woman had to start looking for assistance because often they couldn't afford uh, what they had um, previously. So that's one of the, one of the uh, ways of sliding into poverty. Uh, we talked about this, to, to survive in poverty, one must rely upon nonverbal, sensory, and reactive skills. It's all about survival. It's all about doing things very quickly, um, getting by, getting help. Uh, for those uh, to survive, for uh, us to survive in business in the school setting, we must have verbal, abstract, and proactive skills. You know, we try to plan ahead, we try to think ahead, we try to work ahead. Uh, we talked last week about uh, the difference between those in poverty often live with um, very concrete ideas about the world. And uh, we know that we often have to think more abstractly. Uh, we talked about some of the first key points we're going to cover more today. Uh, last week we talked about uh, p poverty is relative. It depends on where we are and what our situation is, how we look at poverty. Uh, we use the analogy if uh, you took all of your, your assets and liquidated them and moved to New York City, um, would, you, would you still be middle class if you felt you were middle class or upper middle class? Probably not. You probably couldn't afford uh, living, living in New York City. But if you went to um, a suburb of, uh, say, Mexico City uh, in, a, in a poorer region with those assets, you would be thought of as very wealthy. So we talked about poverty is relative. I shared with you my experiences. Um, my first teaching job, I grew up in Mississippi. My first teaching job, 100% of my children were on free lunch. And it was a very high crime, high poverty area. And uh, after teaching there a couple years, I had the experience of being an exchange student to Sri Lanka, south of India. And the poverty was a very different kind of poverty because no one had anything. No one had running water. No one had electricity. And they didn't think of themselves in terms of being poor. My children in Mississippi could look over the railroad tracks and see this huge difference between what they had and what those in the beautiful antebellum homes. And there happened to be a, a woman's college across the railroad tracks from where they lived. So there was a lot of, lot of um, difference between the lives of the people on either side of the railroad tracks. Um, and then we talked about... Um, a poverty occurring in all races and ethnicities. Uh, we talked about the very poor in Kentucky, and you know some of our poorest people in our country live in the Appalachian area. Um, and there are a lot of other issues that, um, not just poverty, and we're going to talk about these more next week. Uh, the, the the issues that go along with that kind of poverty, uh, drug abuse and uh, crime, and a lot of those things that go hand in hand with those people that that are trying to survive. Generational and situational poverty, we discussed that. We talked about uh, the differences of those two and the fact that situational poverty can affect any of us at any moment. Uh, we can lose a job. We can have a catastrophic illness or accident that can throw us into to poverty. Uh, we talked a little bit about some of the natural disasters in our world the last few years, and uh, we can see how a lot of people's lives were changed. I told you the story about being on the Mississippi coast when we were taking students down to work and got houses and um, one of my friend's family uh, lost, several of, of their friends lost their homes. They lived on beautiful homes right on the coast and uh, they, were, they were older and retired and they could live with, with children or grandchildren but they said that they were really um, so concerned about the, the young people in their late 20s or early 30s who had bought a home and had a 30-year mortgage and now owed the bank for a 30-year mortgage but didn't have a home to live in. And obviously their lives were going to be altered drastically, um, never dreaming that they would have that kind of a situation. So situational poverty is something that, that we should, would all, should all be very aware of. Um, I think that probably all of us in this room have been touched by someone, whether it's our family or whether a friend, who has been downsized or lost a job, people that were banking on their retirement or their pension, and now they have to, to, to think of something else that they can do. Uh, sometimes it puts them in a situation where they have to ask for assistance. And uh, those in middle class that haven't had to do that, it's, it's very difficult sometimes because we don't know where to go, and it's very embarrassing, and it's, and it's something that is very difficult. And we talked, too, about um, schools operating from middle class norms and values. 
uh, because I do come from that education field, I know that there are these expectations. We expect everyone to come prepared, having had a good breakfast, having had a good night's rest, having parents that have helped them with their homework. And if you're in the school systems, you know very quickly that is not the case. There are many, many children that come with, with very little. And uh, not only very little um, in supplies and support, but uh, nutritional problems and sleep um, problems. So uh, we, we do have to think even in, in our schools and our businesses how people are affected by, by poverty and, and some of the things that go along with it. Uh, and then we're going to move on to what we did toward the end of last week. And those of you, anyone else that, that was not here last week with us? Everybody, everybody that was not here got a... If you'll take a look at that uh, very quickly, we're just going to kind of review it, catch people up. Uh, we talked about, we had gave you a little quiz, and this is a quiz that, that Ruby Payne designed. Oh, okay, sure. Um, this was um, designed to help people kind of understand a framework of people and the value system living in poverty. And uh, you can, you'll notice here that as you read through these, and we talked about this last week, uh, when you look at them collectively, um, I think most of you would agree that it's not a place that you would want to be. You know, many of the things that are on this list, um, I know to how, how to get someone out of jail, I know how to move in a half a day, um, I know how to get by without a car, I know how to use food stamps, I know where the free clinics are, I know where the, the um, uh, some of the disturbing ones, you know, knowing where the garbage, <coughs> grocery garbage bins are that can be accessed for throwaway food. You know, things that, even though, d if you've never had to deal with those things, you just can't imagine. And there are many, many people who, this is their existence, this is their life. And, and I think it's kind of shocking to people that that gap between uh, those living in poverty and those in middle class seem quite big. And to me, when I read kind of the collective group of um, quiz questions in middle class, I think about, of course, my life, you know, I fit right in there. And I think about things that growing up I took for granted uh, because of my parents and my, par my parents' parenting, you know, knowing how to set a table. You know, we didn't talk about uh, where, if we were going to go to college, but where we were going to go to college, you know, de decorating our house for holidays. Uh, these are things that, you know, I always took for granted, and I feel very comfortable with all of this list. And so that gap between those living in poverty and middle class seems to be pretty, pretty large. And there's also kind of a surprising distance between middle class and wealth. And, uh, and again, this is to just give you some ideas of, of those that are very privileged and have opportunities uh, might be a little different from those living in middle class or, um, or poverty. Uh, I think one of the, on the little chart that I gave you to look at, uh, that was kind of your assignment, was to take a look at that chart and see, see some of the things that you felt, and we're going to see that chart in a second, but one of the things that's on the chart, which I think is one of the most important strands across there, is the driving forces of these three areas. You know, the driving force of poverty, number one, is survival. You know, being able to make it day by day. Uh, it's a very, very difficult existence. Um, and because of, because of that, uh, things that are very important to people living in poverty, one is relationships, because they don't have, um, obviously, a lot of financial and, um, you know, personal property things. Relationships are extremely important to them. I used the example with the group last week about um, uh, somebody that was working in HR at, at Mercy Hospital said that um, she couldn't understand why sometimes some of the people that, that were living in poverty, um, some of the housekeeping and some of the maintenance people would call and ask for a day off to attend an ex-mother-in-law's uh, funeral or an ex-so-and-so, and, -so. and it's, it bothered her to think that they didn't understand that that's not part of your immediate family. But after reading Ruby's work, she said, I realize now the importance of relationships, and they might not be you know, immediate family relationships. They might be extended relationships. They might not even be a relative. They might be somebody that's very close to them. But how important those are in the lives of those people. And so she said she really changed her attitude. It was instead of, yes? No, no, that's okay. No, that's okay.
I, I worked at Child and Adolescent Service Center as a counselor, and we did a lot of home visits. And frequently, I would go to someone's home, and there would be somebody I'd never met before there. And they had just given this person a place to sleep, invited them in, helping each other. And the, as you say, the relationships with other people is right. really valuable to right. you. Thank you for sharing that. And please feel free. I, I'm kind of going fast because I'm trying to just catch up a little bit from last week. But please feel free to, to chime in and share your stories and, and if you have any questions. Um, that, that's um, that's a, a great example. And I, I think, too, when I was uh, a principal, I, I was in an area that there, we had some, some uh, children living in poverty. And it was interesting because a lot of times families would come to the school to sign their children up and they would give me an address and I realized that it was an address of a family member. And sadly, and this is, uh, we don't have time to talk about all these aspects, but one of the things that I found very interesting was uh, they might stay with um, a brother or sister-in-law or family member for two or three months and then there might be an argument and then all of a sudden their address has changed and now they're living with somebody else. And then that might last for two or three months, and then there. So that mobility uh, is something which is really difficult for, for young children. Yeah, I, I act as a prayer partner in our food ministry, and one of the things that's been interesting to me is that uh, people with whom you pray one on one uh, wait the following week to meet with you again because they feel in a, in a, a relation with someone here in the church, and which uh, was surprising to me. I uh -huh. thought, you know, that, that, that wouldn't be quite that uh, right. close. Yeah. Right. That's, that's wonderful. That reminds me, I, w I taught a cultural diversity class at Malone, and a grad class uh, a couple summers ago, and the students were asked to go into the community and work on different projects and do something out of their comfort zone. They were supposed to go work with a group that was not like them for whatever reason. It might be uh, a racial thing, it might be an ethnicity, it might be a poverty. And there was one woman, when they reported back, I thought it was so interesting, she happened to be a minister's wife, and she said that there was a little church that she passed, and they had a free spaghetti supper every, I think, Thursday night. And she said it kind of annoyed her because she was thinking, you know, I, I wonder what these people... You know, they're just getting a free, a free meal. You know, she just kind of, I don't know, she had kind of negative feelings about it. And she decided that that's what she would do for her project, that she would go volunteer. And she did. And she said it just really changed her whole perspective on things because she just expected these people that were just in there to, to get something out of it. But they were building relationships. And she said when she walked in the door, these people who had come to eat just welcomed her with open arms. And, oh, you sit here. And, you know, thinking that she was there to, to receive, you know, the food. And she said it was just so fascinating how they, they shared so much of their lives with each other. And it was truly, you know, a very um, relationship-building experience. The food was, was secondary. It was having that time together. So that's a really good point. And then the entertainment, which, which I think I shared this story too, but um, I, I remember um, many times as, as a teacher and an administrator how um, things would come up that you realize the importance of entertainment. I would uh, go to get a parent to sign something and you know, see a, a large screen TV or see a, a satellite dish, and I just couldn't understand why that would be their priorities when their children never had uh, decent clothing or, or shoes. And then I realized after reading her work, if you live in such a, a survival mode and if you live in such a, um, a painful kind of existence, w who wouldn't want to escape? Who wouldn't want to see a movie or to, to be able to have that opportunity? Uh, Ruby told a, a story at one of the sessions I went to with her uh, she was talking about a, a teacher or a principal teacher in Texas who had twin girls in her classroom, little fourth grade girls, and um, she, they had really tattered clothes. And so she didn't normally do this, but at Christmas time she decided that she would give them a gift card to Target and suggest that they go buy some new clothes. And so she was kind of excited to see what they would come up with. And after Christmas, the girls came in, same old tattered clothes. And she said, well, did you go buy yourself some new clothes? And they had the biggest smiles on their faces. They said, oh, no, our family has never had a VCR. So we used the money to buy a VCR so everybody could enjoy it. And, and then she realized they wouldn't want to spend that on themselves. They were going to spend it on something that everyone could enjoy. And back to the entertainment, this was something that a relationship and an entertainment kind of situation. Uh, moving on to middle class, I think we touched on this a little bit. Uh, I think those of us that live in middle class realize that 
that we are very work-oriented, you know, that we, um, we strive to achieve. You know, we hopefully uh, work hard so that we get promotions, we get pay raises, or we put money in, a, in an account to take our family on a vacation or start our, our college. I have a two-year-old grandson, and my son and his wife have already started a college fund for him at two years old, actually at birth. But we, we think about those things, and sometimes, you know, the material um, security, just knowing that we have um, the security of knowing that we can take care of ourselves and that we have money to, uh, to, to handle the things that we might need. I think that's something that's kind of an interesting um, difference between those of poverty. So often they don't have very much, and they sometimes kind of live in the moment. You know, when they, they you hear about people living from paycheck to paycheck, I remember we, we live on a farm, and uh, in the fall, when, when it's apple picking time, sometimes we'll have people show up that, uh, that don't have much, and they ask if they can, they can pick apples for us, and we pick by you know, the amount of apples they pick. And we often have people that ask if they can put up a tent out in the orchard, or I had, my son had a little trailer that he used to take to the Alive concerts, it had I Love Jesus all over it, and sometimes he would let them stay in his little trailer. And I can remember one time uh, the guys would get paid Friday afternoons, and I remember just within maybe an hour after they received their, their pay, uh, the pizza delivery truck was coming down our lane to deliver pizza. And I thought, how interesting that, you know, this is how he wanted to, to spend his money. And I thought, well, you know, it's his money, and this was kind of his treat be able to do that. But yet, and then I thought, well, he doesn't have a vehicle, so this would be the way that... So sometimes you have to really think about uh, a, a person's situation and try to be very open-minded about the choices that are being made. And then with wealth, political, financial, and social connections. Uh, a lot of it has to do with, with those connections that are going to help them in whatever, whatever area. Now, I've given you the sheet, and hopefully you had a little time to look over it. If not, we can look at it uh, together now. You'll notice that at the very bottom is the, one, the slide we just looked at, the driving forces, survival, relationships, and entertainment, uh, work and achievement for middle class, and financial, political, and social connections for the, for the uh, upper class. Um, anything that, that you found very interesting or very telling as you look through this? As you look over it, I'll mention a couple. I remember the one on clothing I thought was interesting. Of course, being in, in the education field um, and working, I worked for five years at the middle school, high school level. And, you know, clothing was really, really something that kids were into. And I think it's interesting. Clothing in poverty is valued for individual and expression of personality. You know, some of the things we might see people wear are a little bit shocking. Uh, you know, the, the low pants and the chains, and you know, sometimes it's be, it's, it has to do with personality. Maybe they can't afford uh, to look like the, the normal kids. There's an old movie that I, that I love. It's, uh, I don't know, it's probably out 25 or 30 years ago called Pretty in Pink. Anybody see Pretty in Pink with Molly Ringwald? It's a really sweet story about a little girl who kind of lives on the wrong side of the road tracks and falls for this very wealthy kid in the high school. And I think about her um, character when I think about clothing because she would buy her clothing from Goodwill or Salvation Army and take it apart and create a new outfit. So her outfits were, you know, very, um, very individualized and, and very quirky and very cute. But it was her personality and it was how she could express herself, even though she didn't have the money to buy what, what the uh, wealthier kids had. And then clothing uh, for the middle class, it has a lot to do with um, what's accepted in that area. You know, labels are important. And I think it depends, too. Uh, my kids grew up, you know, we, we're from East Canton, and they grew up in Osnaburg Township. And uh, East Canton schools, uh, I, think, I think right now we're under 1,000, K through 12. So it's a very small, more rural district. And the, the typical clothing for the kids in East Canton, at least when my kids were growing up, were blue jeans and flannel shirts and T-shirts. I mean, it wasn't really labels. But I know I would talk to people that, that are in schools that are a little bit wealthier, and uh, kids were sometimes bullied or looked down on if they didn't have whatever the in clothing was, you know, Abercrombie and Fitch or Old Navy or whatever was kind of the, the, the popular one of the time. And, uh, and so, and then we move on to wealth, and I think about, when I think about clothing with wealth, I, I think about, I love the, the award shows and the red carpet, and you know, what do they talk about? You know, who's the designer? Who designed my purse? Who designed my shoes? Who designed my jewelry? You know, it's all about the name. 
And so you can see very distinct differences between poverty, middle class, and wealth when it comes to clothing. Uh, we mentioned food last week a little bit. You know, for, for poverty, it's all about uh, having enough, you know, quantity. How can we make it stretch? You know, I think a lot of times people in poverty, they, they eat a lot of starch, a lot of potatoes, a lot of rice, a lot of things that can stretch and is not terribly expensive. Uh, if they have to feed a lot of, of families. Um, I don't know, I think I shared this story with you last week. When I was a principal, I remember there was a little boy, he was a kindergartner, and he came from a family that we knew quite well in the community, and um, they, they were very, very poor, and uh, they, were, they had many, many children in the family, and they were kind of re- had a reputation for being a little unruly. As, so when this little fella came in, we knew that he came from a home that didn't have much structure. And so he was a bit of a discipline problem from the very start. But the thing that, that bothered some of the teachers was that at lunchtime, he would not eat anything on the plate. And this went on for his first week or so of school, and they said he t- won't touch anything on his plate. And so they were sort of disciplining him by bringing him into the office, into my office with his tray. And it was interesting because I tried to have a conversation with him. And I realized very quickly that the reason he didn't eat anything was he didn't recognize anything on that tray. And I think it was like mashed potatoes and peas and a chicken patty or something. And so we talked about what he ate at home. And I found out that the only things that he ate at his home were dry cereal and pretzels. And he usually ate them in front of the television. You know, he didn't sit down with his family. And I thought, if that's what he's used to eating, dry cereal and pretzels, those things were very foreign to him. And he didn't know what they were. And so we, we got through it, and he tasted things, and then, you know, pretty soon he was fine, and he loved it, and he cleaned everything off, off his plate. But that whole idea of just not knowing, not being exposed, is something that we sometimes don't, don't think about or don't realize. And then, uh, of course, food in middle class is more about quality. You know, if we're going to be taken out to dinner, we're going to pick a place that has some pretty nice food. And then for wealth, it's more um, of the aesthetics or the way, the way it looks. Uh, time is another really, really crucial um, and again, this is something that, that you might deal with in the business place. I know I dealt with it in school. Um, I would often set up an appointment for a parent to come in and talk about a child, particularly if a child was struggling. And my, my earlier thoughts when I first started teaching, when they wouldn't show up, they wouldn't call, they wouldn't let me know, you know, it was really annoying. I thought, don't they care about their child? Why wouldn't they care about my time? And then again, reading a lot of, of Ruby's work, I realized that many people of poverty, it's not that they're being disrespectful or they're, or they're being rude. That's not part of, of their upbringing. That's not a part of their thought process. And so often um, people living, in, and particularly in extreme poverty, if you go into the homes of, of the children that live in those homes, you see very little print. You don't see, in a middle-class home, you know, you see magazines and newspapers and many, many books. And, you know, in my house, you'd see a to-do list on the refrigerator or a, or a um, grocery list. Or we keep calendars or we have them in our, in our electronics. That we have all kinds of, of uh, print and all kinds of, of things like that that would help us stay on schedule. But for children coming from poverty, often that is not the case. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of times they don't bring things back that you send home that should be signed. Sometimes some of the children's p- parents can't read or write. Or sometimes they dropped out of school very early and they, they have difficulty as the child gets older. And so it's, you know, we, we think about this time element. And I realize that for a person of poverty, um, time is now. You know, it's um, if, if the baby's sleeping and I'm supposed to go to the school, or my husband has the only car, and he's, he's late from work, then I, I'm not going to go. And maybe I don't have a phone to call the school. Maybe I don't think about that being something that's, that's necessary. Um, so again, we, we you know, come from our own values and our own background. I, one of my pet peeves is um, thank you notes. My mother, you know, always, I, mean, I always had to write thank you notes. And my kids, you know, I'm, I'm sure they would prefer not to have had a mother that thinks it's a very important to write thank you notes, but my kids would, you know, after, after birthday gifts or graduation gifts, you know, they would write their thank you notes. And that's something that's not done as much anymore. But those are things that were, I was brought up in middle class, that that is what you do. That is something you do out of courtesy and uh, appreciation for what others have done for you. But so many people coming out of poverty, that would not even be part of that was not part of, of their upbringing. That was not a part of their value system. So the time piece, I think, is really, really important to realize. You know, many people in business uh, I know, um, and many people that I talk to, so often some of the struggles are with people coming on time. You know, they're not, it's, it's just not part of that, 
it's not important. You know, they, they come when they can. They come when, they're, when the car's running. They come when they can get that bus schedule that gets them there. And they don't think, they don't realize the importance. But for, and, and to compare that with what we do in middle class, you know, I live by my clock. Uh, it's, it's sad to say, I wish I didn't quite as much as I do, but we know the ramifications of not being on time. You know, we could lose our job, we could be written up, uh, we're not gonna get done what we need to get done. Uh, what happens if you make a dentist or doctor's appointment and you don't keep it? You could be charged. You know, we know the ramifications of not following through. Uh, and so we, we are much more conscious of that. If I had a, an appointment with my child's uh, teacher and I couldn't make it, you know, I would, first thing I would do is contact them or contact the school. But, you know, that is not something that people of poverty, and so we sometimes have a little prejudice and say, well, what's wrong with them? Why aren't they being mannerly? Why aren't they being courteous? But we have to understand that that's not something that they've ever dealt with or been used to. So it's, it's important to keep in mind. You know, sometimes they don't have the consequences because they don't pay the bill, they don't pay the doctor's appointment, the health health card for right. So, So consequently, they, <coughs> they don't feel those things, mm -hmm. and they, well, I'll just go when I get another appointment. Right. But I know some individuals who have started dropping them as patients, not letting them come back because they've not shown up. And when you have a schedule and every 15, 10 minutes is a dollar sign and you got to keep the business going, you can't afford that gap. Right. So they drop them and then these people come back. Then they start feeling the consequence and, you know, that might some make instances, make some you know, they've been let to come back on a trial uh -huh. basis if they show up right. instead of just blowing it off. Uh -huh. That's a that's a good point. I had started a nonprofit a number of years ago that worked with inner city youth that had dropped out of school, and eventually we did create a, a charter school. But um, before that, we had a number of grants that provided health insurance to these young people, and uh, tragically, and we would bring. In nurses, we would bring doctors, we would bring the insurance company in, you know, to, to really work with these young people, to educate them, to use their health insurance for medical problems. Not one of them ever did. They continued oh. to go to the emergency yeah. room for their doctors. Mm -hmm. That's and, and I noticed that you don't have anything up there about health insurance. Ah, that's right, right. And that's, that's a very important. And I, I think that's very true. I think people do go straight to the emergency room because they know they'll be taken care of and they don't have to have the consequences and they don't have to do that planning ahead. And you know, these are some of the things that, that as a society we hope to start breaking some of these cycles and educating and helping people understand the, the consequences. So good points and you're right, that's something that the healthcare should be something that's on Ruby's list. Other things that you saw in here that, anything that, yes. It's not on there, but um, it has to do with cell phones. Um, and I, I'm just amazed at people who come here, like to the food, clothing, and prayer ministry, and our Saturday breakfast, and other people who come in for assistance. Um, not all of them, but many of them have cell phones. And I've been wondering if some of that has to do with the whole issue of relationship that keeps them connected, that that's that that's so much more important than other things, in, uh, you know, that um, in their lives. And right. I don't know what right. other people's thoughts are on that, and I know that there's some folks here. Uh, Carolyn. Shout. You know, I experienced that and worked with some of these youth that you, I question how do you have to talk to them? Well, maybe you That's right. 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 And how important that exactly. And I think you make a good point. I think it is about relationships. And often, you know, we think also about transportation difficulties. A lot of people don't have any transportation, so they're relying on the bus, or they're relying on friends, or they're walking. 
And having that cell phone, you know, if somebody doesn't pick them up or they miss a bus or they've got some kind of way to, to communicate. And I don't know, I, I think it'd be interesting to know how many, now this plan that they give them free phones, I don't know what, if there's any kind of limitations, but I know it, cell phones are expensive and texting and all these things that add to it. I don't know whether they, they are, uh, I, I know from experience with having to reach families, so often cell phones had been disconnected because people couldn't pay the bills. And I don't know whether people have communicated with them. The, the idea of getting uh, some type of a, a portable, you know, track phone or kind of thing that they could pay for as they go, which probably they wouldn't, they wouldn't have it very often. But uh, that, that, is a, that is a really good, good point. Yes? Uh, two things. First of all, one, those phones are also entertainment. Ah. That, um, you know, they play the games, they, they interact with, with other people. It is a relational thing. But this shows light on, on something that's kind of irritated me over the years with the food, clothing, and, and prayer ministry. And that is, you'd be amazed how early they get here, how, how early the clients come, and they, they all know each other's names. And, and we're even quick and glib to say, you know, they just go from place to place all together and get their free stuff and, and move on. But the reality is, as, as this kind of opens up to me, is that this becomes family. Those are the relationships that are theirs. Even the Saturday breakfast, they come in groups, mm -hmm. uh, and they sit around the tables, and they talk, and, and a lot of them will stay the whole time uh, because it, it's the relationship stuff. Right, right. Different context. Right. And for some of them that aren't working or that aren't, I mean, that is their, that is their social time. That is their communication. Great. Good examples. Thanks. Okay. Anything else that you see there? Yes. Uh huh. Right. That that, is, that should be. But I think a lot of them feel that, uh, as it says, valued and reserved as abstract, but not as reality. I think a lot of them come from this generational poverty. Where, well, my parents didn't. You know, they quit in the seventh grade, or they quit, and they don't think of it as something that they're going to need. And we're going to talk about that more, about how ways to get out of poverty. But that's a good point. I think that uh, a lot of them just don't see that there's going to be an end. They, you know, none of my parents went on to school. I don't think that I'm going to be. So it's not really a reality for them unless somebody helps them with a relationship. And we'll talk about that. Yes. and somebody will buy a $25,000 house. I have to do a lot more running, delivering paperwork and things for people who buy the less expensive houses because their printer's broken or their internet, mm -hmm. something's wrong with it, or people that buy a $100,000, $250,000 house, I can almost do everything from my office. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just more prepared to do business. Right. And I have to do a lot more explaining with, with lower end housing and, right. and counseling and kind of stuff. That's, uh, that's good. And I, I think that, like we were saying before, I think a lot of people that probably are buying those, very, those lesser homes, I mean, it's wonderful if they can take that responsibility, but a lot of them probably haven't had much experience with those things you're talking about, with using a computer or with understanding uh, the monetary aspects of interest or making payments. So there's, there is a, a huge learning need there that you probably do have to provide that extra assistance for them. Yes. It seems like there's a connection in the work area between the poverty and the wealth because neither of them has to work. And then it becomes codependent in mm -hmm. some ways because the, they relate in the not having to work or achieve area. Oh, that's interesting. That's a whole discussion, I think. Well, <laughs> but that's yeah, but, but th yeah. it's just a natural affinity, perhaps, uh -huh. even a ingratiating attitude by the poverty and the um, entitlement makes the yeah then yeah perhaps but then the the wealthy feel the noblesse oblige so right. that becomes an interdependent it just seems like sorry have <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> hands therefore <laughs> um, it, it seems like it becomes the the folks in the middle the, the middle class therefore um, how do you, how do you uh, communicate and uh, get an understanding between those, uh, those two affinities? Uh -huh. 
Interesting question. I think a lot of it is, is kind of the knowledge of understanding where they are coming from. You know, no, no, that's okay. Go ahead. Your voice was trailing off. That's right. So it was your lead-in. I listened to you long <laughs> enough to know that you were done. That's right. <laughs> I jumped the gun. Okay. Okay, I'm sorry for jumping the gun. Uh, you know, I, in, in looking at this, I think that the lucky people, going down these lists, the lucky people are the ones who started out in the middle class, wound up wealthy, and retained the values of the middle class. Uh, and there are a lot of people like that in this room. Uh -huh. I, that's a re really good point. And when you were talking, I, what, what popped into my mind, I have a, a film that I use with, when I do a week-long program on this, and it's called People Like Us. And it's got these really great little snippets of people living in poverty, people in middle class and their struggles, and people in, po in, in wealth and their struggles. And there's this one segment that jumped out to me when you were talking, and it was about um, a, a high school teacher who, I don't know, makes 35000 a year, and he works at a very, very wealthy high school. And his students drive, you know, $70,000, $80,000 cars to school. And he has a real problem. You know, he parks his little, you know, beat-up car, and he thinks, what's, what's the problem here? You know, these, these kids, when they turn 16, they get to choose any car they want. And, you know, this, this whole idea of his struggle with accepting the fact that this is a different value system, and he has to understand that. And, um, and I, you know, I think there's so often it's, it's kind of that knowledge. But that's, a, that's an interesting comment. I think that understanding these, and I know as a, as a teacher, understanding where people of poverty were coming from made me so much more empathetic and, un, and I could understand. And I, I think we do, with this knowledge, we can possibly move from, from one to the other, but still have the appreciation for those that maybe don't have all the experiences that we might. I'll yes. Come over here. Okay. Um, my, I, I've worked with this before. I always see the um, the conflict in the in the grid line that goes between the different statuses. And for example, the poverty to middle class. That line that goes all the way across the uh, chart there. That that line represents um, where where. Uh, where our conflicts uh, exist because the service deliveries, a person in poverty that's going somewhere for a service will usually end up dealing with a person that's in middle class or, or, or somewhere in that status. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding. You have a person coming to you from a very defensive position because they have to reach out because just because someone is in poverty does not mean that they don't possess the elements of pride and, and uh, that, they, that they want to be treated with some respect. So they're coming at you already with, with this defensive right. mechanism in mm -hmm. place. And unfortunately, oftentimes, we don't get prepared to accept that person coming in. So we have our value system up, and we're judging, prejudging the person before they exist. Uh, so I, I think some of the things that you said have been really good. I uh, would counsel that perhaps we should start thinking about ourselves and how we react to this. I did some research into education uh, for the Lake County school system because they were looking as to why aren't the immigrants coming to parent-teacher night. As I, I got into the literature and then I did a lot of interviews and what I'm finding is that these folks were coming home from work, they would get home at 5.30 or so. They didn't have time to shower and change but then, and they're living in a poverty environment but then we're taking them into a middle class environment where uh, you know the teachers and a lot of the other people are dressed up similar to how we are now and it was a source of embarrassment for right, them right. so the recommendation was let's change how the approach but that's right. those grid lines are what i've always uh -huh. found to be the points of contention right, right and and to piggyback on what you said about that intimidation not only in the way they look and feel but sometimes language they're afraid they're not going to understand and they're going to embarrass themselves and also, some of them may not have had a long education, and so they're intimidated by teachers. I remember when, uh, when my younger son was in junior high, they kind of changed the focus. You didn't go in and talk to one teacher. You'd go in and talk to a whole table full of all their teachers. And I thought, here, I'm an educated person. And how intimidating it was for me, I was scared to death because I thought, they're going to attack my son. And for a, somebody that, that grew up probably did not like school, maybe didn't do well in school, they're very intimidated by those people in that education field who maybe think they know more. That could be awful. And you can understand why people wouldn't want to go to that. That's, that's an excellent. 
Many years ago, I worked um, at Goodwill Industries in Akron, and I was hired in to do job placement for a, a variety of individuals who came from different programs and were, and were ready to go to work. So when I first started there, I was very naive, and the first thing I did for the individuals I were on my caseload, I would go and pick out their file, and I would read all this, and I got to the point that, oh my God, I, I can't work with this person. I'm terrified of this person. So I finally quit reading that because it affected me totally different, which kind of piggybacks on what yeah, Raphael said. Pre-judgment. Oh, very, very good. Uh, something else that I want to piggyback on what you were saying about in the workplace. Uh, three years ago, we had a lot of community people came together. And I don't know if any of you happen to be involved in this. We had a Bridges Out of Poverty workshop for three days here in Canton at Malone. And, um, Terry Drusy Smith, who drew, grew up, I don't know if any of you know her, she grew up in Canton, and she's one of the authors of this book, and she came to run this. And, you know, it was so interesting because we did a lot of group work, and we had to do a sort of a um, time frame of what a person in poverty has to do to get assistance. And it was from getting up in the morning, finding someone to take care of their children, being sure the bus schedule is going to work, having to change the bus three or four times, having to find the address when you're not really sure where you're going. You know, all these obstacles, and then they get to the place where they're going, and somebody throws an application at them and says, fill this out, and they look at it, and they can't read it. They don't understand it. It says, what's your, your doctor's you know, number? They have no idea, so what happens? They leave it there. They walk out. And so and as we were t sharing these things, you know, it was really eye-opening to people. And one of the challenges of this was we don't want you to leave here and just say, oh, I learned some things, that's good, and not do something about it. So we, had, we followed up with these little focus groups to kind of find out what, what was done. And um, Tom Thompson, I think he, any of you know Tom? Yeah. Tom Thompson? Yeah, he works at Family and Job Services. Oh, he's the new director for Coleman. And, but his previous job was with Family, Family Jobs and Services? Okay, and I remember I thought it was so neat. I went to one of these focus groups after this training, and they, his office had really taken it to heart. And one of the things they discussed after doing this, they said, you know, we don't have a very friendly environment. When people come to get assistance from us, they walk into sort of a cold um, reception area, and the person who's a receptionist, you know, is very businesslike, and, you know, you need to fill this out, and, you know. And they thought, wow, the way we first, going back to that, that slide about relationships, the first thing we need to do is make them feel welcome and make them feel comfortable and don't intimidate them. So what they did, which I thought was fabulous, they repainted the, the, the foyer in something very bright and cheery. They brought in plants. They brought in used children's uh, play things so that the kids that came with their parents could play. They, had, they changed the receptionist to somebody who was very outgoing and would greet them with, oh, can I get you a cup of coffee or a glass of water? Oh, let me, if you have any trouble with this, let me help you. I've got a, f a phone directory if you need any assistance. You know, just really going overboard. And they said it was absolutely amazing the, the difference it made for those people coming in. And again, going back to what you're saying about building relationships, those people felt welcome. They felt cared about. They felt this person is going to help me. And I thought, what a great way to, to really use what they learned instead of just putting it in the back of their mind and saying, well, that's good to know, but you know, how am I going to use it? So, um, Raphael said something that struck a chord with me about anger. Um, we lived in the Deep South for um, four years. And <clears throat> one thing I remember is going to the Walmart and doing the checkout. And I'm going to get very, very graphic or very deliberate here. There was always a 19 or 20-year-old black female who, no matter how pleasant I was or whatever, um, made me feel like I was, from the distant past, a, a slave owner. It was in Natchez, which which, you know, it was the very center of the slave trade in the United States. And, and she w they were always so hostile and, and so um, rude that obviously I stopped going to Walmart for a lot of reasons, but, but that being, being the first. Um, and yet in my heart, I intuitively know or think I know what's going on there. I have also felt it here. Um, 
thoughts? Oh, wow, that's interesting. And I know exactly, growing up in Mississippi, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, that, that was a conflict that I had when, when we moved down to Mississippi. Um, I was about a fifth grader, and I had, you know, grown up in a, in a Christian home, and, and I had always been taught that everyone is equal, you know, no matter what, what ethnicity, race, whatever. And I really, that was, that was just, you know, in my heart. And I can remember uh, going to school and thinking how odd it was that people would use very derogatory um, words against uh, blacks. But yet I'd go home with them after school to play, and they had a black maid who they loved. You know, they'd hug them, and, they, you know, they had, it was such a, a conflict. And I would go to the doctors, the dentists, and there'd be a, a white a waiting room and a color waiting room. This dates me because this was in the 60s. But white waiting room, color waiting room, white water fountain, you know. And uh, it was just, it was really hard for me as a Christian to know how can, how can they have this, um, you know, it's such a two-faced way of, of looking at things. And, and I don't know, I... The, the movie The Help, you know, came out a few years ago, and, and I think there were a lot of things in that that, that were quite true um, at that time. You know, things have changed, I think, quite a bit, but some things really haven't. And, I, you know, I, I don't know, I think it'd be fun to kind of do a little experiment and see if, if you just kind of kill them with kindness, if you could get a smile or, boy, you look good today. Nothing, you, nothing you've tried no, worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, anybody else have any thoughts? Yes. You know, I was part of a medical group, and uh, we decided we wanted to have a black person to uh, employee. Well, we went through four black girls over a period of time, and one of them I really liked. They all were high school graduates, uh, so they weren't stupid. The I and one of them I've worked with her. Uh, same thing. They wouldn't show up for work on time. The other girls, well, the white girls, would go nuts. Uh, and pretty soon, they're ready to throw her to the, you know, to the wolves. And pretty soon, you've got a, a riot on your hands in the office. Uh, not physical, but you know what I mean. Huh. What would you have done with that? Well, I guess, I guess one thing that Let's see if I'm going to skip here. I just, I just love this uh, quote. No significant learning occurs without a significant relationship. I think, you know, I, and you probably had a relationship that she probably respected. And I know sometimes if, if you can have an open enough relationship that you can sit someone down and say, you know, I'm trying to help you be successful. And you have to be here on time. You know, I, I, think sometimes, I think sometimes we're a little bit too protective and too guarded. We're afraid to say things. But I think if, if I were that, that young woman in that situation and somebody came to me and said, I want you to be successful, and this is what you need to do to be successful, I, I, would, I would be so, and you probably tried it and it didn't work. <laughs> and I, I, think there's, I think there's also... Well, and I think we're, we're struggling, too, with, with where they come from and, and what, you know, they live with that value system at their home. And, and that's another thing we deal with in business and in education. You know, you're really fighting. Sometimes it almost feels like a losing battle. You don't want to give up. But when you're dealing with having to, it, it's just, we're going to talk, if we get time today or next week, about language. Um, and it's one of those things that, that I think Ruby hit it right on the head because I know as an educator, my parents, my dad was a college professor, my mom was a teacher, and if we mis misspoke, if we used poor grammar, you know, we'd get corrected right on the spot. And so that was kind of, again, in my internal, you know, thoughts. And so as a teacher, that would be my tendency. When I taught those children in Mississippi, you know, and they would use ain't and all that, you know, so I would want to say, does your mother use ain't? But of course she did, you know, so I couldn't use that as a... And so I had to, it was very difficult for me. How do I teach them to be successful in their life and in business if they don't speak properly? And we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but um, Ruby has a wonderful way. And again, it goes back to telling people what they need to hear. And that's one thing Ruby says about these hidden rules. Don't be afraid. Don't keep these to yourself. Talk about them. If you're dealing with somebody, you're trying to help them, you know, say, this is what the expectation is. 
This is how we need to, to change things. Betty. Uh, I see your, your little blurb up there. I was in another life, I was a speech pathologist. And one of the questions we asked him, that was asked in one of my courses was, you have so many dialects and it's very difficult. And Ruby will talk about the different registers that people talk in. And when working with, there were a number of black girls in my class, and one of the questions was, why don't you have the black dialect, so to speak? Mm -hmm. And it was explained to us that some, the, the girls explained it, that they had a relative who spoke standard American English, like we all mm -hmm. speak, and that was their role model. And uh -huh. everybody in their family spoke so that you could hardly understand them. Uh -huh. And yet they were, they had this role model, which goes back to a relationship. Uh -huh. Right, right. This is a little teachable moment. I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and talk about this. Do you finish at 10.15? Okay. 20 after, no later than 20 after. Okay, okay, great. I didn't even get close to what I was going to cover today. We're going to have to move it to next this, week. This group has a of doing that to the speakers well, that come. That's, that's great. It makes me feel like you're interested, but uh, I'm not getting very far. We'll, we'll go faster next week. Well, this, we'll just jump ahead because I think this is really good and it's very time into what we've been talking about. These are Ruby's registers of language. And when I first saw these, I thought, oh my gosh, I understand exactly what she's saying. For a frozen language is uh, what we all do, like the Lord's Prayer or the National Anthem or things that we all recite together. We know the words. We, most of us know the words. And say these things together. It's all kind of in unison. Uh, formal language would be somebody giving a speech uh, with you know, complete sentences, with proper syntax, with all of that type of thing. And then consultative is kind of what I'm doing, kind of give and take. I'm maybe not finishing all my sentences, phrases, uh, you know, more, more casual kind of thing. Um, but not as casual as casual. And there's kind of, there should be, I think, a red line between consultative and casual. And casual is uh, poor grammar, it's um, using slang, it's using dialect, it's using all those things that often people come to the workplace and the school with that is so frustrating to those trying to teach them because often we know that that kind of language is not going to help them get a job, it's not going to make them successful, and we have to, to work with them. And what Ruby's point was with the casual language is she says in, in school you have to be very, very intentional. You have to say to them, when you walk into this room, I want you to be a success. I want you to be a success in school. I want you to be a success in whatever you do in your life. So when you walk in here, we are using consultative or formal language. We are not using any casual language. And she calls them on it right away. And so, of course, you know what peer pressure is like. You know, if, if, a, if a big big guy, you know, wants to, you know, if he's going to talk properly, then kids are going to tease him. But if he knows that everybody is going to be treated the very same way and everybody's going to be on the same playing field, it's not as difficult. The example she uses is there was a teacher, again, in Texas, that's where she's from, who um, used the example, a high school boy comes in and throws his textbook on the table and says, this homework sucked. And she said, you sit down and write that in two, two ways in formal language. And he wrote, sat down and wrote, I didn't like this homework because I didn't understand it, or I didn't like this homework because it was too much. And so he put into, into uh, his communication what was proper. And so it was a way of her saying, this is the way we're all going to be treated. It kind of goes back to the uniform thing. You know, people have different opinions about uniforms in school, but often uniforms really help make the, the playing field level because then there's not people pointing out people that maybe don't, can't afford to dress the way that, that the norm would or the, the accepted would. And so I, I just think that these registers of language help us understand that for, for people, and in the workplace too, you can talk about the necessity for speaking clearly, for using good grammar, for not using slang. And what she says is not to be disrespectful of where they come from, uh, not being respect, disrespectful of their mother who says ain't or uses improper language. And she explains to her students, you know, it's okay for you to go out in the hall and with your friends, you may use any language you want, any casual language. When you're at home, when you're you know, out in the neighborhood. But when you're in here, we're trying to prepare you for the future. We want you to, to be successful. We want you to be treated with respect. And we want people to know that you're the intelligent person you are. And so I think this really helps kind of give a, a nice little framework. And then the last one is, is intimate. That would be, um, you know, relationships, re intimate relationships with spouses or 
boyfriend, girlfriend, that type of, type of language. But I think this really helps kind of focus on that difference between helping people understand. It goes back to what she says about building a relationship and helping people understand. You don't just ignore it. I remember uh, when I was an administrator, I had a, a teacher who I kind of inherited when I went to the school who used very, very poor grammar, and she was teaching young children. And I had to confront her with some of these problems, and I knew that she would be very defensive and very hurt by it. And so in preparation, what I did is I, I wrote down things that she said that were improper, and I wrote it in context, and I dated it, and so I had all this evidence. So when she came in and I you know, told her that there had been some complaints about her language, and of course she denied it and said, oh, I, that's, that's not true. And so I was able to kind of give her this evidence. And of course, there were lots of tears, I think, shed by both of us. But um, she understood that I was trying to help her, that I wasn't trying to embarrass her, I wasn't trying to hurt her. But I wanted her to be a successful teacher. And I wanted the, the parents of those children to respect her for the person she was. And she was an excellent teacher. She just uh, had grown up, nothing against West Virginia. She grew up in West Virginia, though. But she grew up in a, in a, in a community and a family that had a different way of, of speaking. And uh, she just had to realize that that was not part of what was acceptable in the school or in business. So um, anyway, with that, it's, yes. Bottom, I think. I just wanted to, um, and I wasn't here last week. I wanted to be. I'm sorry I wasn't. But um, the whole notion of, of privilege that runs through all of this and that we all sitting here have, you know, it's, it's racial privilege, it's in my case, you know, some, half of us have gender privilege, you know, white male privilege. And a lot of these things, I think, um, come from a situation where we, you know, we have this notion that we just want to shake people and say, just can't you be like me? Um, when we have this privilege that we, we don't even know we have, uh, but it's real. And um, if you're talking to a minority, uh, and, and you know, minority in terms of gender or class or race or whatever, they, they don't work from that, that same basis of privilege. And um, I mean, I think we have to come to terms with that, and I think that a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that or have difficulty acknowledging that. I'm glad you brought that up. There's an excellent book out called um, Race and Condescending Teacher Out There that you can refer to this or that way. Can you turn to page three? Column three next week, there's a, a really good little quiz about um, white privilege. because it's, it's about a, a woman uh, very close to us here in Ohio that lives in severe poverty and the kinds of things that she Yet she has so much, as you mentioned earlier, so much hope, so much, you know, they want to be respected. They want the best for their children. They just don't always have the resources. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today, which is going to stay until next week, is resources. 
were saying about, that one of you were saying about living in, in middle class or going to, to wealth, but still having those middle class values. That's, that's very true. You know, you're kind of, you're kind of rooted in those, uh, those early days of where you are. where they are, not where you want them exactly. to be. And building relationships, you know, when we created a charter school, the young people that we worked with had dropped out of every school they'd ever been to. And I learned individually from these young people, some of them had been to 17 elementary schools. They couldn't even tell you how many schools they had been to. And they came to us, and it was a new school, and many of these young people came to school would not participate in anything. They were just closed down. Until we built those relationships, uh, until they were comfortable in a classroom saying to a teacher, I don't understand this, will you help me? I mean, that was a major, major, well, uh, success when they would say that to a teacher, help me with this, I don't understand. Because if there's not a relationship there with that teacher, they're not going to say that and they're not gonna participate. 